HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Milk is one of those mundane food staples that's sold in vast quantities in grocery stores, bodegas, pharmacies, cafeterias, gas stations, and pretty much anywhere else food is sold. And yet, despite its extreme popularity, not just in the West, I might add, Author Mark Kurlansky refers to it as the most argued over food in history. In his new book, Milk, a 10,000-year food fracas, Kurlansky demonstrates how dairy has framed cultural, genetic, medicinal, and economic debates that have been raging for centuries, from the merits of breastfeeding to food safety regulations to the environmental impact of the industrialized dairy farms. And I'm thrilled to have Mark on the show today to unpack the I'm thrilled. Nope, not that. I'm thrilled to have Mark on the show today to unpack the human relationship to dairy since we first started domesticating animals. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks. Okay, so I want to start and ask you the most obvious question that I have no doubt you've been asked 10,000 times, um, but I can't help myself. Why milk? <laughs> first of all, how many, yeah. times, how many times have you been asked that? <laughs> uh, quite a few, I've, especially if you count the times I asked it. <laughs> So I'm not reinventing the wheel here. That's okay. Uh, you know, it, it's it's funny. It, it started because a magazine, a very nice magazine called uh, Modern Farmer, mm-hmm. um, called me out of the blue and asked me if I would write something about milk. And to be honest, I had never really thought very much about milk. Um, so I said, okay, what about it? And she got very emotional about this story that the calves were being taken away from the cows and the cows would cry. And I said, oh, 
really? Okay. Okay. Let's check that out. And uh, I went around to a lot of dairy farms in the New York area, Hudson and Mohawk Valley, and um, I, that story didn't really work out. I mean, some people said... <laughs> Well, you talk about it for a, for a minute. I mean, not for a minute. I mean, you, you mention it, right, in the book in terms well, of... Well, it's an issue that keeps coming up. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and some cows do cry. A lot of cows don't, and it's kind of inconsistent. I like to... Ronnie Ostrovsky of Ronnie Brook said, you know, all mothers are different. <laughs> <laughs> but what uh, became apparent to me was that farmers uh, knew this was an issue with some people, and they, you know, wanted to work with it. And I, I gradually came to this understanding that milk is just full of controversies, and always has been. Mm-hmm. And that um, to farmers, farmers aren't really that interested in being controversial. They're, mm-hmm. they're really interested in trying to make a living and support their families Mm -hmm. and uh, that these controversies presented opportunities which might or might not work out Um, but the 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 price for milk as the the government uh, recommended price for milk is just way too low Mm -hmm. and uh, if you go higher than that nobody will buy your milk because enough people will do it at the recommended price unless you have something special about your milk. So all of these controversies, you know, uh, GMO-free or organic or uh, kind to animals or, you know, a- any, of, any of these issues um, are something that you can use uh, as a reason for your milk being more expensive. But there's always this catch that uh, it makes producing the milk more expensive. Mm-hmm. which is why these things aren't commonly done. Um, so it became apparent to me that, uh, you know, this was the way dairy farming worked and always had, uh, always going back 10,000 years. There were always issues that people had with milk and uh, farmers trying to deal with them. So I thought that was a pretty good story. Yeah. I mean, and let's let's just go back there, right? Um, let's just go all the way back to the beginning. Where, um, when did we start milking animals as a people? Like when and where? Well, we don't know exactly when. Uh, it seems to be <clears throat> in the Middle East. Um, you know, probably in uh, the Tigris-Euphrates area, which is now uh, Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and it probably started when domestic animals started. There were some vague records of trying to milk wild animals like uh, gazelles, but... Uh, probably um, didn't work out so well. No, I think you'd have to be quick. <laughs> 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 but... Uh, yeah, it's, you know, as as soon as uh, I mean, I, I wish I could be there. What an incredible moment! You know, I picture this. Here's the, there's the mother. Either the mother is dead, or the mother can't produce any more milk, or for some reason, you know, you have this baby who needs milk and can't get mother's milk. Mm-hmm. And what do we do? And uh, and then somebody says, "Hey, what about that goat over there?" Yeah. 
I mean, that's kind of an extraordinary moment. Right, right. I mean, that's certainly, it definitely breaks, I feel like, with um, with what all other animals <laughs> would, right. would it, be it, able it to do. It probably was either a goat or a camel. Yeah, that they started with. So that, so that is, I mean, I, it's funny because when I, on its face, you know, milk. I mean, I am an American. The first thing I think of is cow's milk. But that wasn't, I mean, you dedicate yeah, I mean, a lot of Cow's milk has, has really pretty much taken over and dominated uh, uh, the world. I mean, there are other milks used, but it's mostly cow's milk. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a considerable amount of uh, buffalo milk in, in Asia. Buffalo's not being those wild American things, which are actually bison. Right. A lot of luck trying to milk those. <laughs> um, but by and large, you know, the the, the leading uh, milker all over the world is the cow. Mm-hmm. And nobody really decided that cows had the best milk. Um, it's just that they are the most uh, practical. Uh, they're very large animals. They eat a lot. You have to cost a lot of money to feed them. But then right. when you do, they produce an enormous amount of milk. You you would have to maintain uh, an awful lot of sheep to get the amount of milk you get from a few cows. Right. But what about goat, for instance? I mean, because this is something that I continually, you know, I just didn't understand throughout the entire book. Like how how we just like as a as a people decided, like, nope, the cow, this is what we're going to go with, because, yeah, well, I mean... That's, that's just a, a completely uh, practical um, decision, as I say. You know, it's not a gastronomic one or a health one at all. Nobody decided that cow's milk tastes best, and nobody decided that cow's milk was healthiest, and a lot of people think, actually, it's not healthiest. Right. We'll talk about that. Um, I'm like, but, oh, we're going to talk they about just, that. You know, they... they they produce a lot of milk. But what about, I mean, but for goats, for instance, you said that, and, you know, it helped me with this if I get this wrong, but goats produce more milk, um, like, per body weight uh, compared to cows, or, you know, it's basically yeah. so expensive to, to feed cows, they make a lot of milk, but it's more expensive. Yeah, because, you know, it's, it's, it's not really about per body weight, it's about per head. Per head, okay. You know, how many animals you have to raise and maintain. And... Yeah. So what other, okay, let's talk about kind of the, um, you know, and, and then also, I mean, just with cows, by the way, the other thing, I don't know, I, I guess if I found myself reading this book, like getting like, yeah, why cows? Because, you know, that doesn't, I mean, I guess, yes, they produce the most amount of milk. But the other thing that you talked about was just environmentally, you know, where they, I mean, yes, they, you said they probably didn't start with cows in the Middle East because it's really hot there. Like cows are more of a cold weather animal, Right. Right. Um, so, so then it just it just begs the question of also also they're really they're really grass eaters, not not good desert animals. Right, they don't really like the desert. So, what other types of you know milk that are like are commonly consumed in the world today? Um, you know, still. I mean, the, the thing that was impressive, I also thought I started counting the different kinds of milk that you um, describe in the book. Everything from whale milk to um, Buffalo milk to donkey milk to cat, to horse milk. Yeah, well, we could. We, we let's eliminate whale milk. <laughs> um, we'll knock that one off. Okay. Fine. Yeah, I mean, first of all, the whale farm where you're milking the whales <laughs> doesn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> but, so we we ruled that one out. <laughs> right, but also uh, whale milk is incredibly high in fat. It's like about a third fat because whales 
baby whales need to put on a lot of weight to survive in the cold ocean. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, that's not the case with human babies. So right. that's definitely not a good choice. <laughs> um, goats are a pretty good choice. Um, what do we need? What do we need as humans? Like what characteristics in milk do we are best suited for us? Well, it's supposed that we need milk that's most like the milk we produce. Mm-hmm. Um, which is? Which is, uh, well, you know, people argue because none of them are exactly the same. Uh, but that's why a lot of people uh, have a thing for goat milk. Um, a lot of people think donkey milk is the closest to human milk. And there's this great belief that donkey milk is is healthy. But not a lot of people produce donkey milk. Yeah. Where do you even uh, get that? Uh, well, there's places in northern Italy and Switzerland where they have donkey dairies, which is a nice alliteration. <laughs> um, I like that. Most of that milk, most of that milk goes to health products because of this uh, this belief of donkey milk being healthy. Um, uh, mare's mare's milk. Now you'd think mare's milk would be pretty much the same deal as donkey's milk, but it's uh. It's pretty awful. <laughs> I'm not a milk drinker. I gotta I, tell I don't you, think, I don't think mare's milk is ever going to catch up. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so either. What uh, about? I mean, so what do we need in terms of like the protein and the fat? You know. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that um, yeah, we need like uh, about four uh, percent uh, fat, but then of course, you know, we don't because we don't need milk. Yes. We're, if we're grown up, and so we 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 take milk that you know has a fat content that's reasonably close to ours, and then we get rid of the fat. Right. Um, but uh, you know, and there's the, then there's the issues of all kinds of contents in it, lactose and minerals and, and things. But uh, um, you know, it's one of the controversies: is should we be drinking milk at all? And a lot of people. Um, I mean, my family doctor says grown up shouldn't drink milk. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people uh, believe that. Uh, we, we weren't meant to drink milk. It's, it's just, you know, it's this uh, genetic mutation. Mm-hmm. That we're supposed to be lactose intolerant. And aren't we? We're, we're you know, well, 60% of people are. Right. But... Forty percent aren't, and that forty percent is largely white people of European extract. So, you know, it's uh, I guess it's extraction. You know, European extract would be a commodity. <laughs> um, it's uh, you know, it, it, it just shows who who calls the shots in the world. So you have this this minority people who can drink milk, and they're. They're a very powerful minority, and they've convinced everybody that people who can't drink milk are sick and have something wrong with them. But actually, they're the ones who have something wrong with them. You're not supposed to be able to drink milk. And is that all milk? I mean, I mean, so so what is it? It's the is it the lactase in L- lactose? Lactose uh, is, is a sugar that's in all milk, right? And it's generally indigestible, except that. Uh, babies are born with something in their, an enzyme in their intestines called lactase. Yes. Um, they shouldn't have made these names so similar. It would be <laughs> so confusing to explain. Um, but, uh, you, you know, you only get the lactase for 
about two years in humans, less in other animals. And once your body stops producing lactase, lactose is no longer digestible. Okay. But but for some reason, there's this genetic mutation where some people just never stop producing the lactase. Yeah. I mean, and so is lactose, is the lactose, this may be silly, but is the lactose content in all different types of animal milk more or less the same? Or are there some animals that don't have... Uh, lactose in their milk. No, uh, it's not all the same, but they all have it. Okay, so basically, if you, if you don't have the ability to digest uh, uh, lactose, then you're going to have a problem with any kind of milk. So, uh, but then, but then there are a lot of dairy products or some dairy products that you write about. You know, yeah, in when the you book. start fermenting, um, uh, lactose seems to go away. So, you know, lactose intolerant people can usually. Uh, eat cheese or yogurt. Yes, um, especially hard cheese, right? N- not not always. All you people who get sick on cheese and yogurt, don't start calling in. <laughs> <laughs> <We're> like, <laughs> yeah, We're like some people have right. have success with that. Um, okay, so we and I de- I want to talk a little bit more about kind of how we how milk became so ubiquitous in this country, especially since we're not really supposed to be um, drinking it, and why there is such a um, enthusiastic component of the scientific and, and dietetic community that still really pushes the consumption of, of cow's milk in particular. So that let's, let's, uh, put that on the shelf for a little bit, um, later, but, um, I just want to like, kind of, we talk about, um, cow's milk or, you know, certain people, white people, European people being able to, consume milk, but this wasn't, um, like biologically speaking, but this wasn't, I mean, it didn't necessarily start in Europe, right? Didn't it? We talked about it kind of originating in the Middle East. Yeah. And it seems to be quite prevalent in the subcontinent, you know, in India, in Indians are the great dairy consumers. I mean, uh, there's more dairy recipes in Indian cuisine than any other cuisine in the world. I did not know that. Um, you know, between milk and ghee and uh, yogurt, uh, um, most Indian dishes have some dairy component. And so how did that kind of, you know, come to pass, do you think? Well, you know, India becomes a very complicated thing because uh, uh, the Hindu part of India, anyway, because uh, of all this belief in the sacredness of cows. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, of course, makes cow's milk kind of a special thing. Um, but uh, it becomes very heated and political about uh, how to run these uh, dairy farms. Right right now, it's a tremendously difficult issue because there are Hindu nationalists running the government of India and the uh, state governments in a lot of the states. And a lot of these Hindu nationalists want to return to old Hindu laws, um, you know, forbidding the killing of cows and uh, forget for, forbidding eating of, uh, of beef. Mm-hmm. And uh, it becomes a very political thing because, of course, this has nothing to do with Muslim culture. Right. So it ends up being, um, you know, a... Hindu persecution of Muslims. It's a very complicated thing where, you know, people have died and it's a 
really difficult, but in some states now, um, the dairies are not allowed to uh, kill the cows. This is one of the essential things for dairy farming, <laughs> is killing cows, because uh, they're, they're so expensive to maintain. Right. And they don't they don't uh, produce and, and milk they, forever. They, they reach a point they they reach a point where they don't produce milk anymore. Yeah. And you cannot afford to maintain a cow that doesn't produce milk. Um and if you try to do that your 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 farm will just go under. Right. Um so that could be a problem in a country that doesn't kill that does not Yeah, and so they're trying to come up with things that actually have these homes for old cows. And, uh, <laughs> Retirement. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> not sure how that's working out, but uh, um, but that again begs the question of you know why cows? I mean, you you write a what, what animal did you say lit, was it the was it buffalo that live much longer and and produce or their their fertility yeah, lasts longer? Do. And, and and you know a lot of because of all of this, uh, Indian dairy farmers are turning much more to buffalo, and buffalo you can do what you want with because buffaloes aren't sacred. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have at it. Um, bad deal for the buffalo, I guess. <laughs> um, what about, uh, I mean, have Americans or Europe, Europeans, rather, been like the most reliant um, kind of p- people or culture on milk? Or was there another, um, you know, have there been other cultures that are... No, I, I actually think that the Indians are one of the most reliant on, on uh, milk or on dairy products. Be- given their um, culinary... Um, but historically, certain Northern Europeans, particularly the Dutch, have been very um, uh, milk-oriented and cheese. Dutch historically consumed an enormous amount of milk and cheese. Um, and you write about the Bedouin tribes as well, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a very pragmatic thing. It's also true of uh, the nomads in, in uh, Northern Tibet, where they have yaks, because yaks are the only animal that can live in the high altitudes where they live. Cows can't live up there. Mm-hmm. And they move around with the yaks, and the Bedouin move around with their camels. And so you're, you know, these nomadic animal societies become very dependent on their animals for clothing and all shelter and all sorts of things, and, and, and for food. And so, of course, they, um, they milk them. So, yeah, I didn't. Know. I didn't realize that camel milk was like a thing until I saw. I, th- I think I saw a segment on Vice News, of course, um, about the growing camel milk trade in Australia. Oh well, that's a different thing. You know, <laughs> I mean, what, what, what's happened in Australia? It, 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 what is happening in Australia? Works out, you know. But there was there was a time. When a lot of camel camels aren't indigenous to Australia, but there was a time when a lot of camels were brought in mm-hmm. on the idea that they would be great transportation in the outback. Okay. And, and and then you know trains and trucks and things like that came along, and nobody really wanted the camels, so they were just kind of left out there, and they became feral. And so the interior of Australia, which is huge, is just full of all these wild camels. And now they're thinking, you know, well maybe we can milk them. <laughs> But uh, I visited a, a, a camel dairy in Dubai, uh-huh. and uh, it was very it was very interesting. Uh, you know, Dubai is economically a sort of a peculiar country because it's 
Uh, it's 90% foreigners. It's only 10% Emiratis, the local people. Uh, and, and the rest are largely British and other Europeans. But this small minority, which are the local people, um, you know, they all seem to be sheiks. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they have a lot of money. And they uh, it's oil money. And they... Uh, you know they're 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 very up for experimenting with all sorts of kind of crazy things. So some sheik decided it would be great to have a uh, a camel dairy. So I visited this dairy and it, it was it was completely impractical. Um, and in fact, the dairy makes no money at all. Uh, the um, camels aren't particularly productive, and. They seem to be a little bit smarter than other dairying animals because with a camel, if you take away their young, mm-hmm. they'll stop lactating. <laughs> They're just like, nope. <laughs> right. So you have to let the young uh, 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 suckle the milk, which uh, uh, eats up a lot of your profits right there, which is why dairy farmers generally don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, it's it's just it you know added to the fact that to begin with they're not p- tremendous milk producers it's it, it's not a very productive milking animal, um, but uh, the milk's pretty good. Yeah, the milk's a little like uh, sheep's milk. Huh. You know, it, it has that kind of, for lack of a better word, animally flavor <laughs> that sheep's milk has. <laughs> and, gamey? Uh, Is it gamey? Yeah, kind of, kind of, and, and uh, you know, uh, this this dairy in Dubai just makes the most delicious ice cream. They make it in these great flavors like saffron or cardamom. I, I would not think of, you know, I don't think of ice cream. You know, I'm not like Dubai, obviously. Ice cream. Oh, it's the best thing there. Really? <laughs> yeah. You write a lot about, I mean, you have recipes throughout your entire book, which is amazing, and a lot of historical recipes. Is there any, you know, if if you can, I'm sure this is a commonly asked question also, but like, you know, top recipe that you have, that you kind of came across and have made yourself and really love? Yeah. Well, let me start by saying a little about what the deal is with me and recipes. Mm -hmm. A lot of my books have recipes. Mm -hmm. And I don't really pick recipes because they'll be good recipes, you know, that they'll make great food for you to have at home. I pick recipes that are historically interesting. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in my my, my cod book has a few good recipes, but it has a lot of really awful recipes. (laughs) (laughs) When the book came out in Iceland, the Icelanders uh, cooked a bunch of these terrible recipes. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, But with with the milk book, you know, there's just so many dairy recipes that it was uh, fairly easy to find uh, recipes that were both historically valuable and, and good. Most of these recipes are just great. There's a few obvious ones that you want to avoid, like Richard Nixon's cottage cheese and ketchup recipe. But, <laughs> was that um, the most egregious? Do you think that of all of everything, was that the most egregious recipe for you? Uh, I think so, yeah. yeah. Nixon, all right. Um, yeah, you know, Nixon, <laughs> this was all part of, you know, his campaign in 68 was trying to make him seem more human. So <laughs> 
They tried to get him to talk about food, and then he ended up talking about dieting, and then he ended up talking about cottage cheese and how he hates cottage cheese and how his trick is to mix it with ketchup to oh make it more God. palatable. And you know, and there we were back to not liking him. Again. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh my God. Well, what about the one that you enjoyed the most? Well, I mean, there's a there's a, a, a few recipes. There's Louis. Biat's original recipe for Vichy Suave. This is a kind of a Proustian thing for me. When I, when I was a kid, I just loved Vichy Suave. Mm-hmm. And uh, invented by uh, Louis Biat, this Frenchman who had a restaurant in New York City. Um, not a French dish at all. And I remember it always came in a, you know, a metal bowl sitting on shaved ice and you know, these little dashes of chives floating in the white soup. And, uh, 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 I just love it. And I also, you know, I also did my favorite ice cream dish, which is ice cream with candied chestnuts. Hmm. Um, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of other things. Uh, Pellegrino Artuzzi's uh, recipe for latte gelata is great. Hmm. And... Um, a lot of the Indian recipes are really good. And they use cow's milk in those uh, recipes predominantly? Or are they buffalo Yeah, milk? they usually do. They don't always specify, but they usually uh, they usually do. Um, All right. But uh, there's some old recipes. You can have fun with some ancient recipes because ancient recipes don't explain themselves particularly well. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, so we don't know exactly what they were. There was Cato's cheesecake was a famous example. He gave us a very long, detailed recipe for cheesecake, but you can't really tell what it's supposed to end up as. So, you <laughs> there, know, there aren't any pictures. No. So, you know, let it be whatever you want it to be. <laughs> That's the fun of cooking. Yeah, yeah. You're like, you tell me. <laughs> How did that turn out? Okay, so so shifting back, I want to shift our focus to the States. Um and talk about kind of our, um, you know, national obsession with milk and consumption rates over time. Um, when are cows, you know, native to America, the Americas, or is this something? No, not new? at all. Not at all. They're, 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 they seem so much a part of the American pastoral. It's, yeah, well, yeah. they were brought over by Europeans. And, and in fact, most Native Americans from Patagonia to the north slope of Alaska are lactose intolerant. Um, And before Europeans came to the Americas, there was just almost no milking of animals whatsoever. Really? Yeah. So, all right. Um, We changed that. Right. (laughs) And then, I mean, that, I mean, when did kind of milk production start to really increase? How did this take hold? The Europeans just kind of they were like, nope, this is, this is how it's going to go. Well, the way you know, milk production increased everywhere in the world was the invention of milking machines, which was the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Really kind of late in the Industrial Revolution. I mean, the first steam-powered milking machine was in the 1880s, and the first steam-powered tractor was in the 1840s. Um, so it took a long time, but... Um, you know, farmers are notoriously resistant to new ideas, but uh, um, uh, once they had good milking machines, that really changed everything. Because uh, have you ever milked an animal? 
I have not. I visited um, dairies, but I have not personally milked an animal. Well, I want to tell you, if you're doing it by hand, it's a lot of work. Yeah. And if you got to do it twice a day or sometimes three times a day, um, you, you can't have that many animals unless you have a huge farm staff. Yeah. Um, so milking machines made it possible to have many, many more cows and produce much, much more milk. Uh, to the point where all sorts of other products were coming about because um, of the surplus milk that was being produced because of milking machines. Like industrial cheese was a product of this. So you write that, yeah, you wrote that um, growth wasn't determined by demand. Is this... That's an odd thing, yeah. In 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 the dairy business throughout history, that, that that's a tendency that... Um, Dairy farmers try to produce as much as they can, and they're not asking, is there a market for this? Mm-hmm. So there are various points in history where farmers are saying, okay, what do we do with all this extra milk? Yeah, we and, make... You know, one of the solutions is try to convince people to drink more. Yep. And, you know, that's where... The myth came in that, you know, milk will make you big and strong and was the secret to the success of the Green Bay Packers and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> no, but that's still, I mean... I remember the Green Bay Packers. They must have been drinking a lot of milk. I know? mean, <laughs> that is still, it's so... First of all, there are a lot of kind of, you know, parallels, not parallels, but, you know, things that kind of haven't changed. I mean, you also talk about how milk prices were relatively low, um, and it seems like it's been that way for a very long time. And Always, even, really. Yeah. And so, and like, even kind of as time progressed, there are fewer cows, more milk. And then a curious thing happened. You you say that milk consumption declined. Yeah, and, and continues to decline. Right now, there's a big problem with dairy farmers in the New York area who have been kind of hard-pressed. Anyway, for a variety of reasons, but the government milk prices are based on milk consumption. Mm-hmm. So when when milk consumption goes down, the recommended prices go down. So the recommended prices in milk in New York are very low right now because people in New York City aren't drinking much milk, mm-hmm. and uh, this is a real crisis for. Uh, New York State dairy farmers. Yeah, there. I think the Times has been has been covering it recently, and it's something that I want to talk more about. Um, I've got a I've got a whole dairy milk theme, Mark, of this season, and you are kicking it off with me. By the way, okay. I, I should have led with that. So, um, so yeah. So it's something we're gonna definitely talk about. But it seems like this is something that has been um, an issue you know for for a while kind of throughout history. Yeah, and and the other the other thing that's a, that's an issue with the northeast which is where the traditional dairies are uh, New York state and New England is uh farm size. Okay. Because, uh you know t- traditional farms in in the northeast are family farms and they have 50 or 100 cows or like a really big dairy farm is 400 cows and um with milk machines in places like California and Idaho, they're you know four and five thousand cows. Wow! And the, you know the family farms just they, they on one farm? No. 
On one farm, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and uh, it's very hard to compete with that. For a small family it, farmer, yeah, yeah. it's also very hard to uh, um, have an environmentally uh, sound farm with 5,000 cows. Right, right. And it's also very hard to uh, treat 5,000 cows well. Yeah, well, we don't. So, you know... The, the the old family farms, which are dying out by the hundreds every year, were a much better deal. You know, they were just happier places with better cows and um, cows, I don't know, better treated cows. Better treated cows. And uh, possibly better milk. I don't know. Okay, I just want to pause here. Um, we're going to take a really quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. But stay tuned for more with author Mark Kurlansky. The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. The thing that always kind of uh, shocks me is that, the, you know, milk is a reimbursable component on the, on the national... For you know, the lunch tray for national school meals, uh-huh. I mean, like a, an individual component, like vegetables, is the other you know component, right? It just like kind of blows my mind, and I think it speaks to the fact that a there is very much this common perception or mis you know misconception that it's so good for you. Um, yeah, you know, and, and and good for kids, and and uh, I'm not sure. That that's completely true, right? Um, I mean, it, it, it fascinated me when I was writing about this. But you know, in the uh, in, in ancient times, people didn't drink that much milk um, because it was dangerous because it would go bad. And they, right? And they didn't really understand what that was all about, but they knew that you'd get sick from it, so they didn't drink it much. Yeah. And they used wet nursing a lot and uh, breastfeeding a lot. And then in the seventeenth, uh, eighteenth, nineteenth century, uh, they started turning more and more to what they called artificial feeding, which was using animal milk for babies, for human babies, for, for babies. Yeah, yeah. and um, uh, the, the 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 result of this was a horrendous infant mortality rate, mm-hmm. especially in cities. In the 1850s in New York City, hey, this is a statistic I remember. <laughs> in, the, in the 1850s in New York City, um, 
uh, 50% of deaths were uh, children under the age of five. Wow. And, you know, this was a horrendous thing in Chicago and Boston and Paris and London and everywhere. And what, what fascinates me is that parents didn't say, oh, let's just stop giving milk to our kids because it's killing them. Mm-hmm. People did not seem to recognize that as an option. So they risked their kids' lives to give them milk. Was that culturally? I mean, it, it kind yeah, of... Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Be, I mean, culturally, because women uh, during periods of time, like, maybe didn't want to breastfeed or men oh, didn't want didn't them to... breastfeed, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that's a whole other interesting thing, why women turned away from uh, breastfeeding. Uh, a lot of it had to do with women starting to work mm-hmm. and just the, the, the whole image of women and... What, you know, and, and, and originally it was, you know, it became something that poor people had to do, breastfeeding, but more affluent people didn't have to. Um, it broke down that way. Right. And um, it, it uh, I, I just find it tremendously interesting as I, as I read all of this stuff about breastfeeding and all these, you know, Voltaire and all these people weighing in on it and, and how women had to breastfeed and all this. And it just reminded me so much of the abortion debate. It was all yeah. about men telling women what they had to do with their bodies. Yep. I, re- I loved, I, I really appreciated that, you know, that parallel and that um, point that you made because it's, it's, it's clearly been happening for a very long time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, and it's still a big debate, right? The, you know, breastfeeding versus artificial feeding. You, you talk yeah, about this. Now, now there's this other element to it, particularly in the U.S. Um, although I, I, I noticed just today that there's this big fight where the U.S. was uh, uh, objecting to a, a U.N. and international stand uh, recommending breastfeeding, and the U.S. was opposing that. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know why, because the U.S. has been doing more breastfeeding than anyone. Right, lately, right? In the past right. 50 years right. or so? But I, I guess that's just part of the whole new U.S. approach to opposing everything everyone else wants. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. But, I don't really understand much of what's but, but, happening. But what, <laughs> what, what has been happening is that breast pumps have gotten a lot better. Okay. And Obamacare covered breast pump. Uh-huh. And so a lot of women turn to that. But it's a completely different kind of thing because one of the main arguments for uh, breastfeeding was that it was a bonding of the baby and the mother. Right. Uh, there, there's no bonding in this. There's, you know, there's a bonding of the mother and the breast pump. <laughs> you know, and the milk is put in the bottle in the refrigerator and the caretaker, the babysitter, whoever, gives the baby the milk. Well, it's thought to be much healthier for the child, right? Is that something that you have found in your research to that be it is true? healthier or that people believe it's healthier? <laughs> uh, people, there are definitely people, I mean, people who do it are convinced that it's healthier. Yes, uh, It's a big debate. Uh, among medical professionals, whether it's whether it's healthier or not, mm-hmm. um, but of course there's a big debate among medical professionals about how much milk uh, babies ought to have anyway. Yeah, and um, you know there's always been this belief that um, mother's milk, unless for some reason some mother is just 
physically ideal is uh, is, is inadequate, and that's why there's always been formulas and supplements. Always, you know, going back to ancient times. That that mother's milk is not ideal. It's not. It's not ideal. It needs supplements. Yeah. Why yeah. is that? It seems so, uh, you know, contrary to what is. I don't know. That yeah. Ever think? Uh, like, what, that seems so crazy. It's designed to have happened, but you know, this this may be a uh, uh, this may be a result of uh, prolonging this process more than it should be. Of breastfeeding longer than. Yeah. 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 What is you the? Know, you know, like it's ideal. It's ideal for the newborn baby and. And it's pretty good for the baby up to a year, and then it gets it gets less and less because as the baby's needs become different. Yeah, they start transitioning to more. Right. Um, I don't know what I would call like people food. I don't know <laughs> regular food that everybody. Right. Has. <laughs> I guess you'd have to call it all people food. But <laughs> that is true. Yeah, so it's not the right word. Um, so I mean, how, I guess my question before, which I didn't quite get out, was: ha- Has there been any other food? I mean, you've clearly done a lot of research on a lot of different kinds of, um, you know, f- food products that have greatly changed the food landscape and been central to what we eat. Um, has there been any food product food that you have seen more pushed on some more like encouraged, uh, to be consumed either by like the government or, you know, what, 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 what have you, I guess I'm thinking specifically of the government. It t- seems to me like a big, big push. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, especially in this country, but in other countries too, in the book, I have a, uh, poster from the Soviet Union of this uh, the same thing about, you know, give your baby milk a little bit big and strong. And in, in, in the U.S., this was the work of the, uh, you know, the, the U.S. dairy lobby um, and, um, you know, really convincing people that milk makes you big and strong and milk makes you healthy. And I mean, I was told this when I was a kid. Y- me too. Got milk. Uh, yeah. Big, big campaign paid for by the government. Right. So. And, you know, as a father, I had one child, a daughter, and um, I don't know. I, I was not certain about the benefits of milk at all. But, you know, when it's your kid, especially when you only have one so you don't have any experience. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like you're not really up for experimenting. And so yeah. They're thinking, well, you know. Maybe they're right. They could be. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to take the not chance. Mess around with this. Yeah. Um, yes, yes. So, what about? I mean, in terms but of you don't the, you don't want to uh, have an experimental uh, program for your baby, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I mean, so t- speaking of kind of government intervention with milk, historically speaking, um, you write that it was the first lab-tested food. Was it the first regulated food product? It is certainly the most regulated food product. How so? Um, I mean, there's just more rules and regulations about milk than any other food uh, in this country and in most other countries. Um, and is that prob- is that because of you know, like history? Yeah, scarred by that history of all that infant mortality and uh, which was caused from. Uh, it was it was caused from uh, milk that had gone bad. Um, because of poor sanitation or uh, uh, lack of refrigeration or um, all kinds of things. Uh, and, you know, this this takes us to everybody's favorite debate about raw milk. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and nobody ever said that pasteurized milk was healthier than, than raw milk. What was said was that pasteurized milk was a lot easier for health officials to regulate. Hmm. Um, okay. And and this was a, it was a big fight for decades between pasteurization and just very tightly regulated raw milk. And pasteurization won out because it was a, it was a public health issue. You know, as like public health people said, you know. God, it's just so much easier to control pasteurization than to try to control raw milk. Right. So raw milk is a it's a state by state thing in the U.S. In some countries, it's not allowed at all. In some countries, it's allowed more commonly. <clears throat> but in the U.S., it's state by state. Meaning, its ability to be sold. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you can sell it in some states. I know you can sell it in Idaho, which is a big milk producing state. Um, in in New York, uh, you can only sell it on the farm. Right. This was an interesting idea, you know. <laughs> this yeah. was solving the problem of, of the public health division. They, they no longer have to regulate the transportation of it or what happens to it in the store or any of that. As long as they can monitor that it's well taken care of on the farm, it's fine. But then you have to go to the farm to get it. Which people used to do, right? Yeah, well, they still do some, you know, I mean, there's like, I, I visited, uh, it was a, like a little bed and breakfast with a couple of cows that served uh, raw milk. And uh, uh, a lot of raw milk advocates used to stay there. And, um, I love yeah. I love this the story about you. people used to bring the cows door to door. Yeah. Yeah, in a, in a lot of places in the cities, in, in, including in Havana, you know, which is probably a really good idea. Because it was so, it's so hot. Well, in that climate, I mean, milk is going to go bad so quickly, right. so you just milk it at the door. Yeah. Uh, but they also did that in London and in a lot of places. Was that like the early, the early version of a milkman? Yes. <laughs> like, why did we have him? Why was that a thing? I don't know if did you talk about this or you know in the book? Like the I've always been fascinated by the idea of a milkman. Yeah. Well, you know, it's there. There was an obsession with the milkmaid. Yeah. It was always women, and uh, somehow in the industrialization process. Uh, it, it went over to men. I mean, what, what happened was, uh, it was like cheese, for example. Um, cheese was always made by women, and it was widely believed that only women knew how to make cheese. Um, and then uh, after uh, this tremendous surplus from milking machines, and they started making industrial cheese, uh, this was a huge problem because... You know, only women could make cheese, but only men could work in factories. <laughs> so they didn't know what to do. So if life was the way we would like life to be, it would have been that women were now allowed to work in factories. But no, it was that men learned how to make cheese. <laughs> and, um, and men gradually sort of took over that dairy thing. So that's why we have milkmen. Yeah. Oh. Instead of milkmaids. But delivered specifically to your doorstep. Yeah, I grew up with that, uh, uh, you know, and I... Why that one product, though? Well, it came, you know, fresh from your dairy, and this guy, you know, 
white outfit would come, and he had this metal rack with, I don't remember, it was four or six bottles, glass bottles, and it was uh, unhomogenized milk, what they now call cream line, but what they used to just call milk. And, you know, you take a bottle, and it, it would arrive cool, and uh, it would come in the morning, mm-hmm. and we'd shake it up, and my brothers and sister and I would all have a glass of it in the morning for breakfast, and it was it was great. And then now it's all homogenized. Yeah. Well, then one day, you know, it started coming without cream on the top, and it wasn't any good anymore. And it was like, Mom, what's wrong with the milk? Why did this happen? Why did homogenization um, become all the rage? It uh, still is. It, it wasn't for the consumer. It was for industry because for various. Industrial processes, uh, it worked much better. How, how so? Because it was all mixed together and you didn't have to deal with it. Like the cream uh, globules were um, very tiny. <clears throat> Things didn't get clogged up and milk and cream wasn't getting separated. And it just all went much more smoothly. <laughs> so... One of the, I, this is going to seem like a silly thing to say to a um, nonfiction writer, but the, what struck me reading this book was like the, the sheer amount of research that you had to have done. I mean, I, I feel like a lot, like the topics you covered were not necessarily common knowledge <laughs> in, any, in any way, shape, or form. Did it take you, like, a, like how long did it take you to write this book? Uh, maybe three years. Was that is that on average, you know, given your other books of individual? Yeah, topics, well, I mean, books. I do a lot of different kinds of books, and uh, I've actually done what is this? I think this is my thirty-first book. Wow, um, that's amazing! Congratulations, yeah, by the way. Yeah, it kind of it spooks me when I think about it. <laughs> it's a, it's, you're a very prolific um, writer. And so, you know, some of them take uh, longer than others, but, you know, some. this was one of the books I had that is just, uh, yeah, it was huge. I'm working on a book right now, trying to finish up a book that's about salmon that I've been working on for mm. even longer than the milk book. Can I get, I want to get, like, first dibs on an interview about that one. Okay. I'm, I'm you know, it's it's on air, it's recorded, you heard it here first. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, when you talk about salmon, you're talking about, you know, everything that's wrong with the world is like, yeah. because, it, because it's both a fresh and saltwater animal, it's like every, everything bad we can do to the earth ends up hurting the salmon. Um, well, I, that might have to be a two-part series for us. Right. I, I envision it now, Mark. Okay, so what, one of my, one of a, we have to wrap up, unfortunately, pretty soon, but I, which is unfortunate because I would love to um, go over every single detail of this book with you, but um, our listeners are just going to have to go out and buy it, um, obviously. But okay, so f- favorite fact, favorite like little like something that you that you researched that you kind of made you go like, huh? I, I know one of mine, but you tell me yours first. Well, this is sort of a personal thing. I mean, it, it's a, it's just a question that always bugged me, and that is. Um, since Pasteur was a Frenchman and pasteurization was a French idea, why is it the French aren't the leading advocates of pasteurization? Since they generally really like French ideas. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it turns out 
true to stereotype, Pasteur wasn't working on milk. He was working on wine and beer. Yeah. Just in the process of these, understanding these fermentation, uh, how fermentation works, he started understanding about germs and contamination and how you deal with it. And other people applied it to milk. That's amazing. Um, okay, so that is much more... Um, that's a good one. Mine is, like, super simple and uh, does not necessarily say anything about French culture. <laughs> well, you should whenever you can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> True. All right. Mine, Thomas Jefferson, we, you talked about refrigeration a lot, obviously. It's very pertinent oh. when you talk about, um, you know, substance like milk. Thomas Jefferson bought one of the, was it, like, the, the first kind of, Con, the first refrigeration concept, or the yeah, like the, <laughs> this box that was uh, it was lined with rabbit fur. And it was to bring butter to the market in Washington, and yeah, everybody thought of, kind of thought of the guy as a crackpot, but Jefferson thought he was onto something. Yeah, Jefferson's like, no, this and makes Jefferson's sense. Jefferson's great talent actually is that he 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 really saw the potential in other people's research and in. Uh, uh, Appreciated inquiry, um, and and bought one of the first refrigerators. Right. Um, oh, that also, and I have to say, um, you know, almond milk. I guess this is, uh, you know, I just didn't really think that this has been something that's been produced for centuries. Yeah, everybody thinks of almond milk as something new, but almond I, milk. You know, if you look at recipe books in the Middle Ages, you know, there was tons of almond milk because. Uh, they believed that uh, milk was white blood, and you weren't allowed to uh, consume blood on holy days, which is about half the days of the year. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to make a dish that involved dairy on a holy day, you used almond milk. So you see all these medieval recipes, they'll say, you know, take a cup of milk or almond milk, yeah, depending on which day it is. I really thought it was, you know, like invented by the hipsters in Williamsburg, or now Bushwick. No, it was invented by the hipsters <laughs> in the monastery. <laughs> oh well, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't get everything right. <laughs> um, what about? All right, one more question. Um, obviously, on the on the theme of plant based, what do you think of the oat milk craze? Because that's a thing. Yeah, I. You know, I have to say, I, I don't understand this whole thing about milk substitutes uh, because, you know, it's not like you have to have some kind of milk and these things aren't milk. Right. You know, and, you know, if you don't want milk, fine. You don't have to have milk. <laughs> I, I, I kind of agree. The, the, the dairy industry, I, I don't know if it's been settled, but they did a big legal battle to try to get these people to stop calling these other things milk. Yeah. And and they're right. It's not milk. Right. You, know, you, you want to consume it? Fine. But why would you pretend it's milk? Well, what is, I mean, yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess that is because it's white. <laughs> Right. It's right. fluid, and it's white. Therefore, it's milk. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you get into so many problems with the whole substitute thing. Like, you know, yeah. No, there. Uh, I remember I, uh, my parents, who lived to ripe old ages, always said that you were much healthier consuming sugar than sugar substitutes. I believe that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, are sugar substitu substitutes like sweet and low? Yeah. Yeah, I totally believe that, 100%. Um, that seemed to work for them. There you, there you go. Okay, last question. 
Do you drink milk? And if so, what kind? Um, I rarely drink milk. Um, every once in a while, you know, I'll see one of these cream-lined bottles, and it's like the milk of my childhood, and I'll just be in that kind of mood, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll get a bottle. Um, but I, I, I don't, I don't usually drink milk, especially after this book. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, I'd have a pretty weird diet if it was, you know, all book-driven. You know, I'd be having all. <laughs> I don't know, a lot of salt and a lot of codfish. (laughs) (laughs) Do those three things go together? No, not according to a lot of cultures, dairy and fish. Um, But in some, but in some. Um, Well, we have to wrap it up uh, there, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and um, chatting with me. Yeah, it was very nice talking. (laughs) This was great. Um, And, oh, last last question. Where um, Where can our listeners find your book? Oh, you know, that, that that old phrase, wherever books are sold? Yes. <laughs> you know, You're if you like everywhere. personal opinion, go to an independent bookstore. Yes. If they don't have it, they'll order it for you and have it in in a day and a half. McNally Jackson or right. Word. <laughs> All right, Mark, Mark, thank you so much for joining the show. Okay, we have to leave it there for today. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as our engineer, the one and only Matt Patterson. Show music is by Tim Archer, and all episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't already done so, subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.